Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is All of It from WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. A hundred years ago today, on February 12th, 1924, this was played in public for the very first time. At the premiere performance of Rhapsody in Blue, the composer George Gershwin sat at the piano to play the piece, which he had reportedly only begun writing about a month beforehand. It debuted as part of an evening titled An Experiment in Modern Music, meant to showcase the latest developments in jazz with one of New York's venerated within one of New York's venerated concert halls, the Aeolian. Today, Rhapsody in Blue is a staple of the American musical canon, an early fusion of jazz and classical that has inspired countless composers, as you heard in our last segment with Bela Fleck. Joining me now to get into the piece's history and legacy are three more musicians who have found ways to find meaning in the piece. Brothers Colin and Eric Jacobson are the artistic directors of the orchestral collective The Knights. They've launched a multi-year series called The Rhapsody Project, celebrating Gershwin's composition and exploring the Rhapsody. The next event for them will be at Carnegie Hall on February 29th. Colin and Eric, welcome. Thank you. How are you? Thanks for having us. Our pal Lara Downs is a pianist and musical activist. She recently released Rhapsody in Blue, Reimagined, a new arrangement by the Puerto Rican composer Edmar Colon. Lara is also one of our judges for the Public Song Project, so we're extra excited to have her on today as we launch the second edition focused on the 1920s. Lara, welcome back. Hi, Allison. Great to be here. Listeners, tell us about your relationship with Rhapsody in Blue. What does listening to it conjure for you? Have you played it? If you do, do you have a favorite recording? 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692, 212-433-9692. Do you have a favorite recording of Rhapsody in Blue? Maybe you play it. What does that feel like? What does listening to it conjure for you? 212-433-9692, 212-433-WNYC. You can call in and join this conversation on air. You can always text us at that number as well. So, Eric, I'll start with you. What is your favorite moment or section from Rhapsody in Blue? Oh, it's such a good question because like the music of Gershwin so often, you can't help but walking away kind of whistling one of his tunes and feeling emotionally satisfied and uh, overwhelmed by the joy of what what he has created. I I would say from um, performing the work, uh, you know, a bunch in the last couple of years and maybe in the last 10 years, there's that epic moment after sort of uh, Gershwin has got our virtuosic pianist flying all over the keyboard, playing every note on the instrument so many times. The orchestra gets these wonderful licks. There's cadenzas. It's everything that it's supposed to be. And you get in about 15 minutes and there's that moment. The piano leaves us with these questioning chords, chords of wonder, chords of what are what's next. And all of a sudden comes in the strings and just a little triangle and uh, then horn with, with the love melody. And it's just about as beautiful a moment in history. It's like the perfect, it's like the gymnast who raises 
her arm and then puts it down and it attempts this wild feat. But because of the virtuosity, it feels completely uh, um, natural and without any athleticism. And it, I think it's just love incarnate. Lara, is that also your favorite? Yeah, no, fair. It is. And it feels so funny to say that because I think everybody loves that part. But I, you know, I love it because Gershwin goes to this place of intimacy. And I think the Rhapsody is so forward looking, right? That's his main objective. But with that theme, he's also looking back and he's embracing his, uh, the other part of his history as a pianist, as a classical composer, you know, his love affair with the 19th century, with Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky and everybody else. And it just kind of, for me, illustrates the long line, the lineage that connects everybody. Well, let's listen to that portion, the love theme. This is a version of Rhapsody in Blue recorded by the Knights. Let's take a listen. Let me bring you into the conversation. When we talk about a rhapsody, what is exactly a rhapsody and how is it important in understanding this piece? It's great. I, just quickly, I was just thinking Rachmaninoff, after Lara said that, was supposedly in the audience at that premiere. And I would love to, <laughs> you know, imagined his face when that theme came in with a tip of the hat to him, you know. Um, but yeah, Rhapsody, well, you know, the great thing is there's there's really a music definition, which is an episodic yet integrated free-flowing piece and structure, very improvisatory, often with virtuosic um, playing. Um, but I love that it comes from an ancient Greek word, um, several definitions there, songs stitched together, or an ecstatic expression of feeling, and apparently a rhapsode, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, was sort of an itinerant bard going around um, reciting and singing Homeric epic. So, um, and, and I think that really speaks to what Gershwin was trying to do with that piece, which was stitch together, you know, many songs of America in, in that piece and, and part of why it, it has this lasting legacy. Let's talk to Barbara calling in from Brooklyn. Hi, Barbara. Thanks for calling all of it as we talk about Rhapsody in Blue. Hi, it's great to be with you. I listen to you every day. My edition of Rhapsody in Blue, I inherited from my dad. It would have been his one, my dad's 100th birthday last year. He left me his Oscar Levant uh, recording of Rhapsody in Blue. And I still enjoy it. You know, it's multiple, multiple, multiple 78s. But it's an extraordinary... Yes, in every case, you can always hear the pianist's hand. But it's just it's just a treat. And I listen to that along with his Ella Fitzgerald records. 
Barbara, thank you so much for calling in. You know, we had Sean Hayes on the show recently to talk about his role as Oscar Levant in Goodnight Oscar on Broadway. Levant, of course, pianist who starred in the 1945 biographical film about George Gershwin called Rhapsody in Blue. And as part of Goodnight Oscar, Hayes himself plays a version of Rhapsody on stage every night. I want to play a clip of him talking about that experience on our show. Once I'm into it, it, it is kind of it takes a toll on my arms and my hands every night from playing it. So I'm just trying to do as much self-care as I can by icing, you know, ice bathing my arms right after the show every night. Then mm-hmm. um, I take some vitamins that are help, hopefully um, uh, anti-inflammatory-ish. And I wear these during the day and I'm showing you their compression sleeves. So, Lara, as a pianist... Someone, you know, Sean Hayes is talking about wearing compression sleeve and icing his arms after having to play that on stage. He plays a very furious version of it. Um, what is it like well, to play this piece? Well, for me, that's become a complicated question because I play so many different versions of this piece. You know, tonight <laughs> I'm playing the original jazz band version from 1924. So the version that was heard, you know, on this night in 1924. I also play the solo version that Sean is talking about. I play the 1942 version with big symphony orchestras. And of course I play my own new version, which has all kinds of new elements. So um, I think it's it's a brain exercise for me more than anything else. I It's such well, well-known terrain, but then with each of those versions, I go off in different directions. It's a very multi-layered relationship at this point. Yeah, Eric, the story goes that Gershwin only found out he was meant to be premiering a new work about a month ahead of time. His brother Ira was reading the newspaper and found an article announcing a jazz concerto to be written by George and performed by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra, and apparently George Gershwin had forgotten about it. (laughs) As a composer, what does this story add to the mythology and the legacy of Rhapsody in Blue? You know, obviously, legend is so important for for music in general, and maybe specifically uh, of the music that comes from years and years ago, such as, you know, we have Beethoven 7, his second movement at the premiere. Supposedly, the audience wouldn't stop applauding unless they, you know, the orchestra and Beethoven agreed to play the second movement again, because it was so good. And isn't that isn't that just it brings chills? You know, the idea of, certainly it throws out the idea of a applause between movements is not okay. And then you look at Rite of Spring by Stravinsky, and you remember uh, if we if that piece, you know, that that was the piece that the audience erupted and there were riots. And uh, how could that possibly be? This music is 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 terrible. Oh, this music is the greatest thing ever. And uh, funny that, um, you know, we celebrate these 100-year anniversaries. You know, Beethoven's 250th was recently. Um, the Stravinsky Rite of Spring was about a decade ago. And now today, uh, 100 years ago, on a snowy February 12th, <laughs> this piece by Gershwin was premiered. And isn't it funny that Beethoven and Rite of Spring maybe are accepted as canon, and these are pieces that are not questioned as as wonderful and brilliant and historic. And Gershwin still has edge to it. People still look at it as, well, what is this piece? Is it classical music that dabbles in jazz? Is it jazz that dabbles in classical? Is it uh, taking music that uh, Gershwin was, you know, uh, appropriating? Is it is it classical music that has a new spirit? And either way, there's this edge um, of of um, uh, this edge effect of looking outside of itself, which is so beautiful. And that particular story about, uh, you know, 
uh, George being on the train from Boston to New York and hearing, oh, gosh, I'm supposed to have this piece premiere in a month, which my brother, who's the composer, I I have a feeling you've been in deadlines like that before. But there (laughs) is something about that story. There's something about the rush to finish something in the, I think it's uh, Bernstein's words to do something great. You need a great idea and not quite enough time. And I think <laughs> by, by having this rush, this um, cram, you know, we've all felt it, whether it's like college, uh, you know, year end finals and we have to cram and three days later, we don't remember anything that we studied or we're getting ready for, uh, you know, that promotion you got to put yourself forward or studying for a concert, you know, it exists. And I think this piece, when you listen to it, there's an, there's an essence that is urgent. And maybe that is part of the mysticism of this piece, that there's urgency mm-hmm. and excitement. And maybe it's because he didn't quite have enough time. Let's mm-hmm. take a call. Let's talk to, I think it's Toyen Diaz. Hi, Toyen. That's right. Hi, Toy and Spellman Diaz. Hi, um, hi, Laura and Colin and Eric. Um, it's nice to hear you. I'm the oboist of Imani Wins, and um, I've been fans of all of you guys forever. But um, I'm calling. And congrats on your recent Grammy. Yeah. Oh, thank you, thank you. We were in the same category, and I was I was sure you guys were going to win. But um, but I'm I'm honored to have been in the same category with you all at the Grammys. Totally. Um, I'm calling because <laughs> I'm calling because um, I just played at Carnegie Hall. I'm calling as a musician and the musician's perspective of being in the uh, the orchestra while that amazing piece is going on. I was playing second oboe, so I sit directly in front of the clarinetist as they're getting ready for that iconic solo. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, David Sapodin really nailed it uh, with the New York Pops this past weekend um, with Lee Musiker as the the soloist. And I wanted to say that. That Lee uh, took Gershwin's lead and made up his uh, the the cadenzas in Rhapsody in Blue because, like you said, it was written so quickly that uh, in three or three and a half weeks or so uh, that he didn't have time to write down all the piano parts. So he kind of made it up. And Lee Musiker did the same thing in the wonderful New York Pops concert this past weekend. And I'll tell you, I've never seen such a standing O at the Carnegie Hall. But um, it's really fun to be part of an ensemble while all of that is rushing by you. Thank you for calling in. What a great super caller. Uh, let's talk to Benjamin yeah. from Staten Island. Hi, Benjamin. Hi. So um, what strikes me about uh, Rhapsody in Blue, I wanted to talk about my favorite recording. It's by Andre Previn. Mm. And um, when I first came across Rhapsody in Blue in high school, uh, classical music wasn't my thing, but I would drop a few dollars on the budget recordings. So I had a recording from, like, the um, some symphony orchestra mm-hmm. from Europe. And it was very, it was very straightforward. It was very staid. Mm-hmm. There wasn't much change to it. And about 15 years later, I, I listened to the Andre Previn recording. And he was a jazz musician. And it kind of made, it kind of mm-hmm. showed how much uh, dynamics there are to the piece. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, he, slows, he slows down a lot. He pauses mm-hmm. a lot more than the Hungarian orchestra. 
Benjamin, I'm going to dive in here because I want to, before we run out of time, I want to make sure we get to Laura's version of Rhapsody in Blue Reimagined. Um, Let me play a little bit of it and we can talk about it on the other side. It sounds like you had great fun reimagining this piece. Fun is a good word. Yes. It's that energy. You know, Eric was talking about the energy and the enthusiasm and the youthfulness, I think, that we feel in this piece. Gershwin was so young. All of this stuff was young. I mean, America was still kind of young, you know, and and jazz was very young. And so when I've been thinking about this piece and the 100th anniversary, there was a lot that I wanted to explore in terms of its origins and also the, the future of it, the, the vision that Gershwin had for this piece, he called it the musical kaleidoscope of America. And that, I mean, I just love that phrase so much and, and feeling everything that he was feeling about um, expressing new languages and listening to new things that were around him and creating this, you know, new blend, um, the melting pots that he talks about, that he's, that he's celebrating in this piece, the melting pot in 1924 versus the melting pot today. Mm. So much changes so fast. And, and that's what we've tried to capture in this new version. I also want to remind people on February 29th, the Knights will host Chinese composer Du Yan at Carnegie Hall as part of their ongoing Rhapsody project. My guests have been Colin and Eric Jacobson of the Knights, their artistic directors, conductor and concertmaster, as well as Lara Downs, pianist, Rhapsody in Blue Reimagined is out now. Thanks to all of you for being with us. Thanks, Thanks Allison. Thank you so, much. so much fun. And happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> There's more all of it. On the way, you know actor Josh Radner from How I Met Your Mother. He's also a musician. He's joining me for a listening party for his new solo album, Eulogy Volume 1, as well as to discuss a new play he's about to open at the Public Theater this week. Stay with us. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 